Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this week, and as we have come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have seen that we find some really valuable information here. And we've said this is valuable information for us because as we come to this text, Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 is giving letters to the Apostle John to give to seven churches that are in the area of Asia Minor. And Jesus gives these letters to John, and each one of the letters kind of follows a pattern that we're beginning to see. In these letters, Jesus will praise the church for things that they're doing well, and then Jesus will express some problems he has with the church with some things that are not going very well. And we've said this is really valuable information for us. Because as we listen in to this conversation about what Jesus is saying to other churches, we learn what Jesus thinks is good in a church. And we learn things that Jesus thinks is a problem in the church. And if you think this is just about the church or the institution, remember a church is just a group of people. So Jesus is talking about what things he finds commendable or praiseworthy in his people and what things he has a problem with that are in his people. And so by listening in, we learn what Jesus thinks life should be like in his church, what the life of a follower of Jesus should look like. So this is really valuable information for us. I would encourage you to be listening for those things, the things that Jesus praises, the things that Jesus has a problem with. As I read Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17, the letter he has for the church at Pergamum. Hear now the words of the risen Christ. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together as we come to God's word, and then we'll dig in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As the text says, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to your people. I pray that you would help us to learn from this text written thousands of years ago to people in a different culture. I pray that you would help us to hear your heart. And that we would hear the things that are commendable, the things that you would call us to as your people in this day, at this time. And Father, I pray that you would help us to hear the things that are troubling to your heart so that we might turn from those things and more and more live life as becomes a follower of Jesus. 
And Father, I ask that you would be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I don't know what jumps out to you when you hear this letter to this church at Pergamum. Many people that I read as I hear their response to it are disturbed by the militaristic language, the sort of warlike language that Jesus uses here. You see in verse 12 that he talks about having a sharp two-edged sword. And in verse 16 he says he will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And some people are really disturbed by that. And so I want to talk about it because I don't want it to distract you from what Jesus is saying here. Because it does, it is a little bit of a head-scratcher to think that the one we call the Prince of Peace would be speaking in such militaristic language. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he speak in this way? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why Jesus speaks in this way. And the first one is, it makes sense to you if you understand that Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And the symbol of this city was the sword. If you look, Florence, Alabama, you know, the symbol for Florence is the the fleur de lis. um, And different cities have different symbols. The symbol of the city of Pergamum was the sword. And that's probably because this was one of the few cities that the Roman Empire had given the right of the sword. They had given them the power to inflict capital punishment. And we've seen this pattern in the letter. A lot of times Jesus will identify himself in some way that relates to the locality where he is writing. Remember, we've seen that with Ephesus and the concern to be first. And uh, we've seen this in the letters before. So here Jesus writes and he says, I'm the one. These are the words of him who has the two-edged sword. Jesus is reminding his followers in Pergamum. That it is not the rulers of the province where they live who have the power over their lives and over their deaths. Jesus is reminding his followers that it's not the rulers of the world who first and foremost determine what will happen to his followers. Jesus is saying that he is the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword. That Jesus is the one who has the power over life and death with his people. Jesus has come back to this point over and over again. He's reassured his church in every city that this is the case. So let me remind us again that as followers of Jesus, our hope and our fears are not connected to the government under which we live. That our hope is not in election of a political party that we want. Our biggest fear shouldn't be the election of the political party that we don't prefer, that we didn't vote for. Yes, we render the things that are Caesar's to Caesar. You should be informed. You should vote. You should be involved. But we should also be reminded as the people of God that first and foremost, the one who has power over the lives of his people is Jesus, the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. He is the one who first and foremost determines whether or not his people are protected, whether his people are provided for, and he is the one who determines our life and our death from beginning to end. So I remind you, when Jesus says he's the one with the sword, he is saying that he is the one who determines the fate of his people and not any governing authority. And and we're reminded of that fact so that we don't have to be afraid, even in an election season, 
even during a time of great political turmoil in our country because Jesus remains on his throne and he's not up for election. There's a second reason why I think Jesus uses this image of the sword. It's not just because this city used the symbol of a sword and he wants to let his folks know that, that he's in charge and not the governing officials. But a second reason is because the church in this city was in the midst of a fierce battle. And so Jesus is using warlike language because of the warfare that is going on in this city. But you need to understand that the warfare in this city was not so much physical warfare as it was spiritual warfare. The battle that was going on was not really between soldiers as much as it was between ideas. You see, in this place there was a battle for the hearts and minds of people. And the evil one has soldiers everywhere, but this place in particular was a stronghold for him. You see Jesus say in verse 13 that Satan dwells there, that his throne is there. So this city was a center for ideas that blinded people to the truth. Four of the biggest pagan religions of the day had their center of religious power in this place. And so Jesus was in a battle there with the deceiver, with the evil one, with Satan who had this powerful throne there. And Jesus seems to be very concerned for the truth. Jesus loves the truth. Jesus says in, in John 14 verse 6 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the truth, that he speaks the truth. And he wants his people to know and believe the truth. And that's because lies enslave people. That we're not truly free when we have misconstrued and skewed ideas about the world and about God and about ourselves. And when we do that, we don't live life as we were designed to live life. And so Jesus comes with his sword and if you've been with us, you'll, you'll know that from John 1, or from Revelation 1, we saw in that vision that John had of Jesus that the sword coming up out of his mouth was the word of God. Ephesians 6 uh, tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, the only offensive weapon we have for a battle like this. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. So this image is that the word is coming out of Jesus' mouth, which is why verse 16 says, he will come and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus is calling people to freedom. Jesus does not want people to be enslaved to lies. In John 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, You are my disciples if you abide in my word. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So that's why Jesus uses this language of the sword. Because he wants his people to know the truth. He wants people to be freed from lies and not be enslaved. And Jesus frees us and gives us the truth through his word. So I have to ask you, are you in the word? Are you spending time here every day? Without coming and having our thoughts shaped by God's word, we tend to believe lies about ourselves, about the world around us, about God. We have skewed ideas about things and we can become enslaved to these false ideas. 
And it is God in his word who presents the truth, and the truth is what sets us free. And so we must have our minds shaped by the word of God. Jesus is so free. The church is such an inclusive place. People from all backgrounds, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, Jesus invites people to the church. But once he's here, he does not, Jesus does not welcome every idea and every kind of presupposition. He calls people from all backgrounds to change their thinking and to have their thoughts renewed so that we think his thoughts after him. So that we're freed from lies and we live life the way it was designed to be lived. We must be in the Word in order to do that. We're no good to our family if we're not spending time in the Word. We're no good to our church if we're believing lies and not spending time in the Word. I call you to spend time in the Word. More about that in a few moments. Let me move on and ask that question that we said we've seen in all these letters. What praise did Jesus have for this church? What is it that he praises them for? Because whatever it is that they're doing well, we want to do that too. And we want to be the kind of people who are doing the things that Jesus calls us to do and that he appreciates his people doing. And you see there in verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus praises this church, this group of people, because they held fast to the faith. And they did not deny their faith in him, even in this very difficult place to live. It's amazing that there even was a church in this dark place. And it is a testimony to the power of the gospel, to the power of God's word, that when there was a clear presentation of the person and work of Jesus, when it was proclaimed, it broke through and won the hearts and minds of some in that city. And that gospel message that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're made right with the holy God only by the finished work of Christ on the cross, and that he takes people who have fallen short, who admit our sin, and he changes us from the inside out and works in us and uses us to build his kingdom until one day everything that is wrong is made right when Jesus returns. That message so gripped their hearts that they held fast to the faith even when one who was a faithful witness for Jesus was killed. They still held on to their faith in a difficult place. I fear that Jesus would not have the same praise for us because we seem to be very hesitant to be faithful witnesses to him, for him, in a culture that is much less hostile than what these folks faced. Are there consequences for being an idea in this for being a Christian in this culture? Of course there are. But nothing like what these people face. None of us are being killed because we are Christians. Yet this church was faithful in their culture even to the point of death. Jesus calls his people to faithfulness and for us to be faithful witnesses to him. Again, more on this in a moment. I have ideas why we're not as faithful in our witness as we should be. But let me move on to this other 
thing that we talked about. So these folks have resisted pressure from the outside, but what problem does Jesus have with them? Because he expresses a, a problem with them. And while they had resisted pressure from the outside to compromise, these folks were giving in to voices inside the church, and Jesus was not happy about that. You see, there's either one group that's referred to two ways or two groups that are spreading the same false ideas. You see that there in verses 14 and 15 where Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And that's a lot of names, it's a lot of history that exists there. But Jesus tells the problems and the teachings that he has, that they were eating food, sacrificed to idols, and this idea of sexual immorality. Those were both problems that were faced in many of the churches of the first century. In fact, the first church council in Acts 15 dealt with both of those problems. You can read about that there. The Apostle Paul addressed both of these issues in 1 Corinthians because uh, there were issues in that church, and we're going to look at some of that together. But for today, let's do this. I want to focus on eating food sacrificed to idols. Next week, We'll look at sexual immorality, which is also an issue in the church at Thyatira for the rest of the chapter. So next week, we'll look at sexual immorality. So if you want to elbow the person next to you and say, hey, he's talking about sex next week. Let's make sure we're back for that next week. Make a note of that. But this week, we're going to concentrate on eating food, sacrifice to idols. Now, this is very remote to us. This is not something that happens a lot in our culture. So let's understand what Jesus had a problem with. So we can be sure we avoid that in our own lives and in our own churches. What's the history? What's going on here? Well, people in this day, when this letter was written, they would bring an animal to the temple of their favorite pagan god. And part of the animal was offered as a sacrifice to that pagan god, and part of the sacrifice was given back to the person who brought it so that they could hold a feast in honor of that god. And so people in Pergamum became Christians, and they were following Jesus and no longer following these pagan gods, but they had friends and family members who would invite them to these feasts where they would eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And so the question was, should we even go to the feast? Should we even be there? And if so, should we eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Now, I had a question after the first service. You get a bonus content because you're the second service. Somebody at the door asked me, hey, I thought there was something in there about it was okay. Just don't ask about the food. And if you don't know, it's been said. And that's true. That, that dealt with buying food in the marketplace. If you didn't know there had been sacrifice, you could buy it. You didn't have to ask, and you could just eat the food. But this is in the midst of a ceremony where they're having a feast to the pagan god. And so the question is, should we even go to this feast? If so, should we eat the meat? And the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans who are here, they argued, look, idols are just wood and stone. They're really no god at all. So what harm is there in going to one of these feasts or eating the meat? Because idols are really no God at all. And so they encourage people to do that. Others in the church said, no, you shouldn't play a part. 
And the scripture weighs in on this. I mean, that's a pretty good argument they're making. There is no such thing. There's not, it's just stone. It's just wood. Why would we worry about just go ahead and eat the meat, right? Well, there are a couple of things you have to understand about this culture. The first thing is this. Participating in a meal in this culture meant much more than it does in our culture. We go out to eat with people all the time. We have people into our home. We'll go out to eat with people we don't even know that well. We'll go out to eat with people we don't even like if they'll pay for it and it's somewhere we like to eat, right? It's not that big of a deal to us. But in this culture, you did not share a meal with someone unless you were entering into a special relationship with them. In Jewish culture, to eat and drink at someone's table meant a promise of mutual loyalty, there were covenant bonds that were formed by eating together. It was almost like they became a part of your family or part of your tribe. And you were saying, look, if you need protecting sometime, I'm there and have your back. And if I need protecting something, you will be there for me. If you need provision, if you're running out of things, if there's something I can provide for you, I'm willing to do that just like your own family. And if I have things I need that you have, you're willing to provide those things for me. And so a meal together was a much bigger deal. It was almost like forming an alliance between folks for them to eat together. Now, that was Jewish culture. The folks who were not Jews in this culture had a similar view, but these folks who were pagans also believed that at a feast honoring a god, they believed the god himself was a guest and that there was a bond between the people who were eating, but also a bond with the god represented by the idol. So in this particular culture, to attend one of these festivals would be communicating a bond or a fellowship or a partnership with someone other than Jesus. And evidently Jesus considers that not holding fast to him. And that would be communicated to other people around us even if the idols are nothing and Jesus is calling his people to be a faithful witness. But the scripture goes further than that. The scripture concedes, yes, the idols are just stone, they're just wood, the meat is just meat. That is true. But what we do not see at these festivals is that there is something spiritual going on behind the physical and material things that we see. The scripture teaches that there is an unseen reality because there is something spiritual behind the idols. How do we know? Well, Jesus refers here to something satanic, that he dwells here, that his throne is here. Paul talks about it explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at this with me. He's talking about the Lord's Supper and talking about whether they should go to these kinds of pagan festivals. And in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 16, Paul's writing about this table that we'll come to in a minute. And Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is koinonia. Is it not a, a fellowship, a partnership, a participation in the blood of Christ if we partake of this cup? Then he says the bread that we break. Is it not a participation, same word, a partnership, a fellowship in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one loaf of bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf of bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So you hear this binding together language in the Lord's Supper that Paul writes about. Now he turns the corner and talks about these pagan festivals. He says in verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Verse 20, no. Paul says, yeah, the wood is just wood. The stone is just stone. But Paul is saying when we come to this table, there's something spiritual going on behind the physical material things that we see. And he's saying there's something spiritually going on behind the physical and material things at these pagan festivals. Keep reading. Verse 20, he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, and I think this is funny, I imply, but now he's just going to say it explicitly. He's not really implying it anymore, right? He, Paul says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So what's going on here? First of all, Paul says that when we come to this table, the Lord's table, we don't fully understand what happens. That we have this physical, material little piece of bread. We have this physical, material cup and this juice. But that there's something spiritual that takes place when we come to the Lord's table. There's a binding together, a participation, a koinonia, a fellowship, a bonding between Christ and those who partake in faith. And by extension, Paul is saying, yes, when you go to those pagan festivals, that yes, the wood's only wood, the stone's only stone, the meat's only meat, but if that's all you think there is to the world, then you have a misunderstanding in the nature of reality. Paul is saying, yes, we are physical creatures living in a physical universe. But we're also spiritual creatures living in a spiritual universe. And in this spiritual universe, there is a battle going on for your heart and your mind. And that idols are made physically of wood and stone. But behind those idols, there are dark forces. Behind those idols, those idols are backed by cultural values. They're backed by political agendas. They're backed by corporate cultures. They're backed by even religious movements competing with Jesus for your soul. That's why Jesus and the Apostle Paul says, don't partake of these things. Now let's turn the corner and talk about us. Not too many of us are going to get invited to a festival eating meat from food sacrificed to an idol. But I do think Jesus would have us ask the question, what are we giving our hearts and our minds and our souls to that may seem like they're nothing in and of themselves? There's not anything wrong with it. The wood's just wood. The stone's just stone. But maybe these things that we give ourselves to shape us in our thinking because of the cultural values, the political agendas, the corporate cultures that are behind them. Listen to me. I, I say this as a shepherd because I'm concerned about our people. 
We cannot sporadically spend 10 minutes a day in God's Word and then spend five times that long online or 10 times that long watching TV or movies and think that God's Word is going to shape us more than those other things that we're drinking in. And I'm not even talking about bad. I'm not talking about pornography. I'm not talking about stuff that we would objectively. I'm just talking about stuff that the wood is wood and the stone is stone and the meat is meat, right? I'm just saying we have to be careful what we give our hearts and our minds to. Listen to me. We are not faithful witnesses like we talked about before. Not because we don't witness well. We're not faithful witnesses because our lives are not transformed by God and his kingdom. And our lives are not transformed because other things around us influence us more than God's word and God's kingdom. I think that's true of us. I think we would have to say that's true in our hearts. And even if you would argue and push back with me about that, I would say even further, we have to be careful about the message that we send around. Remember, that's what it was. It was like, okay, you may not be giving your heart to that idol, but, but there are other people there who think you are bonding to those things, and that's not a faithful witness to Jesus. Think about that. What message do we send to our kids? What message do we send to the people around us about what we are bonded to or what we are in partnership with? I'll talk about, I'll go first. I'll just talk about my last two or three days, okay? I'll go first, and then you think about what message you send that your heart is bonded to. Friday night, I went to a high school football game. It was glorious. It was just, you know, Friday nights in the South at their best, right? Bear Creek, Alabama, Phillips High School, Shoals Christian was down. A dog ran out on the field in the first quarter, and they couldn't catch him until somebody got a hot dog. It was great. It was crispness in the air. I'm cheering. I'm vocal. I'm cheering for my team. I'm giving the referees a hard time, right? Sometimes they're not as the greatest in these high school games. And I'm very vocal and animated. Keeping an eye on the score of the Braves game. Want to be sure they're doing well. Getting ready for the big Georgia-Alabama game. I'm going to set that time aside. I'm at 7 o'clock. I know what's coming on TV. My family knows. Don't think you're going to get in the TV at 7 o'clock Saturday night. It's been reserved for a while. Now imagine that that's what my family sees as animated. Then I come to church on Sunday morning. I'm kind of bored. I'm not very vocal or responsive at all. I'm looking at my watch to think, you know, what time is it? When are we getting out of here? What are we having for lunch? Now, what do you think my family, what do you think the message that I've given my heart to? What am I bonded with? What am I in fellowship with? What is it that I'm really participating with? Listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a high school football game or to watch college football. What I'm asking you is, is what has a hold of your heart? What animates you? What makes you tick? What drives you? And we can't expect that it's going to be God's kingdom and his word if we barely spend any time doing that and we fill our mind with other things. Jesus wants a faithful witness to our friends and family. And Jesus wants to guard our hearts from the unseen influences of things that seem harmless, 
but in reality shape our minds and our hearts and our souls. We need to be honest about what our priorities are. We need to be honest about what we're giving ourselves to. And if your heart is anything like mine, we need to repent. That's exactly where Jesus goes in verse 16. Look what he says. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus calls us to repent. Remember we talked about this the first week, right? And keep in mind that he's not talking about people out there need to repent. He's talking about people in the church need to repent. Yes, we repent when we first come to Jesus, but all the Christian life is a life of repentance. And we talked the first week, we were in Ephesus, about how uh, repentance is just a U-turn, right? We're going in one direction, and we stop, and we turn in another direction. Some of us have a U-turn that we need to make. That we're spending more time and more of our heart and more of our mind and more of our priorities in other places besides God and His Word. We need to have a change in our minds that results in a change in our outward behavior. We all have misconceptions and lies that we believe, so we must be dedicated to the renewal of our minds. And how are our minds renewed? What does the text say? Jesus says, I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth, with the word of God. This is what changes our minds. This is what changes our thinking so that we have a change in our behavior. So that we have a change in the things that we love. And the things that we praise. And the things that we adore as we see their worth. As we're reminded of what is true. As our presuppositions change about God and the world and ourselves. Listen, I'm so excited about what we're doing as a church leadership. I think this walking your path classes are so important. And the reason they're important is because it is teaching and equipping the people of God in how to have a relationship with Jesus. How do you grow? How are we changed? Well, it comes from prayer and spending time in prayer with God. That's the first week. You can go and look at it online. Last week, Michael Cody did a great job of talking about how we can get in the Word and spend time and give us a simple way to study so that we all are equipped to do that. Tonight, James Thigpen is going to talk about why it's important to attend on Sunday. What is it that we do here that transforms us and enables us to be salt and light and different from the culture around us so that we can be faithful witnesses? If you miss one of these, you can find them online, redeemershoals.com slash walkingyourpath, and you can see these classes. You can get the downloads. You can get the handouts that come as PDFs. They're on there. And again, I've said this before, but I want to say it again. I feel like I'm giving a commercial. Please, do not hear me saying I want you to buy my stuff. This is all free. Don't hear me saying I want numbers of people at this stuff. That is not what, what I'm about. That's not what we're doing here. But let me do share my heart. What I want is for you to be equipped to walk with Jesus. I want you to be different than the culture around you. I want to equip you to do that. I want you to learn to do that. I want you to have a real relationship with God so that you are more influenced by God and his kingdom than the things that are out there that are putting pressure on us. And this class is the best way our leadership has found to do that. 
So please make that a priority and look to be involved in these things as a reminder of how to walk more closely with the Savior or maybe as a way to learn to walk with him for the very first time. Now, for those who repent, Jesus gives two promises. I want to look at those with you quickly in verse 17. What are the two promises Jesus gives? He says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You see the two promises there? Let me cover the white stone first, because I can cover it pretty quickly, because I can just tell you I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> I read several experts, I read the commentators, and I saw 11 different theories about what that could be, and even those folks were saying, yeah, we're really just kind of guessing at this, we don't really know for sure. Well, I was hoping to hear more than that. Well, I'll tell you my best guess of what it is, based on the the history of the time, and based on the context where we find it, in the context Jesus is talking about the feast of hidden manna that he gives to his people, and he's talking about it in the context of feasts of idle meat. And so because we're in that context, my best guess is this is a reference to the ancient use of square white stones as tickets for admission to an event. And basically... Um, if you were a gladiator and you won something, if you uh, won something from the state or from the government, they would give you these white stones as tickets and you could get bread for them. You could get into public events. You could get into different entertainment. This stone was like a ticket, a personal one with your name on it. And so when Jesus writes to those who overcome, to those who persevere, to those who conquered, to those who have won, I will give this ticket to get into the feast. Of course, the feast in heaven, the, Jesus gives a personal invitation to the banquet that he is giving. That's my best guess. But fortunately, the hidden manna is much more clear because Jesus tells us what that is. You see, just as the people of God ate manna on the way from bondage and their slavery in Egypt to the promised land, Jesus feeds his people the church. And in a discussion on manna, in the context, in John chapter 6, and around verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Everyone who eats some of this bread will live forever. This bread is my body. I will give it for the, for the life of the world. Jesus is saying that he is the hidden manna. That if we walk in his ways, if we, we meet him in his word, that we're closer to him in that place. And Jesus comes to us and he's asking us this afternoon, why are you eating at the table of lesser gods? Gods that will not stand for eternity. Gods that do not ultimately satisfy. Gods that lie and deceive and send you astray. Jesus is asking, why not come to me and eat at the table of the one who truly satisfies? Jesus says, I am the true manna. Feed on me. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that in your grace and mercy... 
people who have not been faithful in their witness, people who have not been faithful in their time with you. Thank you for your grace and mercy that we can come to you and say, Lord, I've been wrong. And that whether we're repenting for the first time or the millionth time, that you receive us with open arms. You draw us to yourself and you extend grace and mercy to your people. I pray that we would find grace and mercy as we come to your table today. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing as we prepare for creation. Lay your burden down.